Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Hello and welcome to the Money and Meaning Show. My name is Jeff Bernier. Delighted that you joined us today for our monthly discussion around uh, meaning and purpose and what gives you joy in your life and combining that with wealth management topics and financial planning topics that can help you create the, cre uh, the freedom and the capacity to go pursue your vision of a meaningful life. And that's what the show's about. The show's about uh, trying to help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what truly matters in hopes that you uh, are able to fill your purpose and your meaning uh, as you uniquely define it. You know, wealth management, uh, comprehensive wealth management, uh, attempts to provide holistic advice on a whole host of financial matters. Cash flow, tax planning, obviously asset management, portfolio design, uh, risk management, asset protection, uh, estate planning, college funding. There's just a lot that goes into a holistic wealth management process. Uh, in our practice, um, we determined a long time ago that we can't be great at everything. And the way to provide a holistic, uh, comprehensive uh, advice platform to our clients, we want to partner with the best and the brightest uh, in our area to help us deliver this holistic, holistic experience. And the way that we do that is we collaborate with other professionals. So I'm really excited today to have one of our collaborators uh, on the show today, uh, where we'll talk about one of these important wealth management areas, uh, wealth um, uh, estate planning and wealth transfer. So today I'm really, really excited to have my friend and colleague, Tony Turner. Tony is a, a partner in the law firm here, Cohen, Pollock, Merlin and Turner. Uh, Turner provi uh, Tony provides high net worth families and business owners uh, legal advice concerning estate planning, asset protection, business succession, and a number of other um, uh, estate and, 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 and business matters. Uh, he practices, as I mentioned, in the area of family wealth planning, estate planning, charitable planning, probate, and estate administration and planning. Uh, he's a really smart guy, uh, got his undergrad at uh, University of North Carolina, uh, got his law degree at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and, and uh, his master's in tax here at Emory University. Uh, has a lot of awards, and he's well-known in the Atlanta community. Um, he doesn't look like it, but he's been around for a long, long time. So, Tony, welcome to the Money and Meaning Show. So happy you joined us today. Thank you for having me as a guest on the show. Yeah, great, to, really great to have you. And uh, as I mentioned when we talked about doing the show together, it's you know really designed to be pretty informal. But I do love for our audience to at least get to know who you are a little bit. So, do you mind just telling our audience a little bit about yourself and your family, and uh, kind of uh, and, and a little bit about your practice and and what you do? Sure, sure. So I'm married to Jill. She was my sweetheart in the sixth grade. So we've been married. <laughs> Married a long time and been known each other for almost all our lives. Uh, we have two children. Um, one, uh, my daughter, who's about to get married, and she's a bulldog. So we had a really good, uh, yeah, good week, a good week this week. Go dogs, yeah. Uh, and then my son, uh, who's about twenty-four, 
Um, and he's still in school. We're trying to work on that. So you <laughs> have to listen to your podcast to hear about how you get him out of college. That's yeah. Yeah. Well, good. Well, good luck with that. I don't have yeah. any magic bullets there. So yeah. Terrific. And uh, my, I have, you know, sort of simple hobbies. I love to fish and snow ski and work out. And the workout is probably good because I also like to eat good food <laughs> and drink good wine. So it's sort yeah. of balanced about that. Perfect. Um, so that's, just, that's kind of me. Yeah. Um, in terms of our practice, um, I uh, got into this business. I was a CPA accounting major at Chapel Hill and, you know, sort of a numbers kind of guy, but I thought it would be more fun to stay in Chapel Hill for three more years than <laughs> go out in the workforce. So I went to law school and found that I really loved the law, um, decided to come to Atlanta in 1988 and began working at a large law firm downtown. Um, I was doing all kinds of tax work, M&A transactions, state and local tax and estate planning. And I really had an affinity for estate planning. It was, it's a, it's a whole lot of fun because you work with lots of interesting people, um, right. just like in your business, you yeah. get to know people, they, uh, trust you a great deal and share a lot of their personal life with you. Right. So you feel, you know, a responsibility for that, but you also get challenged because the estate tax laws, as we'll probably talk about in a little bit are complicated and people's lives are complicated. So it's an interesting mix of technical and psychology and just having a really deep relationship with your clients. So that's why I got into this and why I'm still in it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's true in our business as well. I mean, there are areas of technical expertise that you must have to meet sort of minimum standards. Um, but in a world in, in estate planning and in financial planning, like we do, uh, I mean, the behavioral aspects are, are really just as important. Um, and the relational, um, you know, because you are asking some people some really personal questions and getting to know them probably better than anyone else who's not in their family. Uh, right. so it's a, so it, so it can be quite rewarding, uh, in that regard, I find, and, and it sounds like you do too. So let's start with the basics uh, for a moment and just kind of get the, get the audience up to sort of a baseline. So what are the elements of a comprehensive estate plan and, and, uh, you know, what will you include in, in a basic, you know, I guess, estate plan and, and why are these elements important? Okay. Um, there are really three or four legal documents that most people need. One is pretty familiar with everybody. We call this in Georgia an advanced directive for healthcare. Some places call it a living will or a healthcare power of attorney, but it does just what it sounds like. If the, if the client becomes incapacitated, somebody needs to show up and talk to the doctors or be at the hospital and make medical decisions. And as a result of COVID over the last two years, we've seen a lot of use of these, whereas most people sort of put it on a shelf and never needed it. A lot of people really need it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's really important, obviously, to have that uh, for yourself. The key question is, who's your agent? If you're married, typically it's your spouse. And then you need a backup in case your spouse is also incapacitated or predeceases you. So that's really the key question for most folks is, who do I want making healthcare decisions for me? Um, I also recommend these for clients' children. Once a, a child reaches age 18, the parents lose all parental rights. Right. And so a child who ended up in a hospital, um, the doctors do not have to talk to the parents and give them information about it. So it's really important, particularly when you send your kids off to college and so forth, that the parents have a health care directive for their children as well. 
so, so that the facility can talk to them or the doctor can talk to them and they can they can uh, be in the loop in terms of their care. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I've had some terrible circumstances where you know child was injured uh, out of state at the time, and the parents are freaking out, and the doctors won't talk to them because wow. they have obligations yeah. under HIPAA not to share that information. And so, yeah, that's really important and a good go away for clients who have children who aren't married and are young adults. Right. They can't do it till they're eighteen. Right, uh, right. The so other documents. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, the yeah. second document. Yeah, so that's second, the so that's the advanced directive. Keep going. I'm that's sorry. the advanced directive. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. We, we yeah, it's all right. The second document is called a power of attorney, okay. and again, this is one of those documents that everybody needs. It authorizes someone to take care of your financial world if you become incapacitated, and I'm sure you see this all the time. Sure. And as much as you'd like to assist a client, if somebody comes to your office and says, "I want to look at my mom's account. I want to pay some bills." Uh, you can't just let them in there right. um, unless they have legal authorization, which is what a power of attorney is for. And most power of attorneys aren't effective until the person who creates it becomes incapacitated. And then the person they appoint, we call it the agent, can do anything that they can do financially, sign their name, pay their bills, do anything under the sun. And again, that's become really important, particularly recently with COVID and people have been right. out for the count um, in some cases. Uh, it, this is only good while you're alive. It doesn't continue right. after you die. Um, and again, everybody needs one. Typically, the spouses will name each other, but you need a backup. Right. Okay. Um, the third document is the will. Everybody knows what a will is, and that describes what happens to your estate when you die. Um, typically, you have someone you put in charge of settling your estate, which we call the executor in Georgia. Some states call it a personal representative. But this is the person who would step in in the, of, in the event of your death and make all the decisions about the estate, collecting the assets, paying the final expenses, and carrying out the terms of the will, whatever it says where the money goes. This is the person that does all that. It's a pretty labor-intensive job, um, unless it's a very simple estate. And so, you need to think long and hard about who you want to saddle with this responsibility um, because they're going to spend several months dealing with it. Right. Um, and usually, again, in a married couple, the spouses name each other, but it's important to have at least one backup, probably a second backup, just in case the person you chose can't do it or they've predeceased you. Right. Um, so I like to have at least a backup to the backup as executor. Okay. In the will, you can also name a, a guardian for your children. So if your children are under 18 and you die, they have to have a new parent until they become 18. And the court system here in Georgia allows you to designate who you want to, as we say in the South, raise your kids. Right. Um, and obviously, that's a tough decision for a lot of people. Uh, I have a lot of clients who change their mind frequently about right. who gets the kids. Sometimes that's just a function of everybody's age. As the kids are get older, sometimes it's not appropriate to put grandma and grandpa in right. charge of a bunch of wild teenagers and right. stuff. Right. So the guardian tends to change fairly frequently. Um, and then oftentimes, and we'll get into this in more detail probably, there are provisions in the will for a trust, which is just a way to hold assets after you die. So most clients, for example, who have children will leave the children's inheritance in a trust, which is just a provision in the will that says this is what happens to the money until the children grow up. 
and they might say, you know, until the kids are 30 or 25, somebody else is going to handle the children's inheritance, make sure the bills get paid uh, for the kids' needs. Um, that person is called the trustee. Right. And that's, again, after the estate is settled and the executor's job's done, the guardian is raising the kids and the trustee is handling the children's money. A lot of times people pick the same person for all three jobs, the same person as their guardian, as the executor under the will, and as the trustee of the kids' trust, just because a lot of times a, a family member can do it all. Right. But it's not necessary that they all be the same person. In my family, for example, my sister-in-law was a great mom, so she was going to be my kid's guardian, but she couldn't balance her own checkbook, so <laughs> I was not going to put her in charge of mine. Yeah. So I made my dad the trustee, and he would make sure that my sister-in-law had plenty of money to raise the kids, but she would go to the grocery store. Yeah. He would handle all the investments and the bigger picture of the money. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. I mean, different skill sets, uh, you know, yeah. in those situations. I mean, you're really lucky if you get all three in one, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Is there a concern if it's, if it's one in terms of sort of a check and balance on the checkbook and the kids or I guess. It's, well, there is that risk. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they call them trustees. Yeah. You trust them with your money uh, or your kids' money. Yeah. Um, some people pick co-trustees because they're really uncomfortable with just one person having complete control over the money in case Uncle Billy flakes out and puts it all in cryptocurrency. Right. You know, thinking <laughs> it was the right idea. Right. So sometimes uh, it makes sense to have a co-trustee so that you know, there's sort of two heads are better than one and nobody can do something goofy with the estate. Right. Uh, some people have no choices, you know, occasionally will come across and they either have a very small family or the family they have are not trustworthy. And so there are corporate fiduciaries, banks and trust departments that can do the job of executor and trustee either in tandem with somebody else or independently. So that's right. always a another option for some particular clients. Right. Or, or a potential backup if, if you run out of individuals. So in your practice, do you normally name individuals or uh, it sounds like you normally prefer individual trustees as opposed to corporate trustees? Yeah, almost always, um, unless the client just doesn't have any family that they can use in that role. And as you said, it's often a good backup in case all your trustees die right. um, before your kids are grown, then you've always got this backstop. Right. Okay. Now there's a fourth document that some people use and it's a little confusing. We see it less in Georgia than you see it in most of the country. And it's called a revocable trust. Some people call it a revocable living trust. And essentially it does the same thing as a will. It describes what happens to your assets when you die and who's responsible and all these roles that we talked about, but it's primarily used for avoidance of a process we call probate. So when a person dies, if they have a will, the will doesn't activate until the person named as executor goes to the probate court and gets a, a legal order from the probate judge that says you're now the executor and you're in control of the deceased person's assets. Georgia has the most uh, probably the simplest probate system in the United States. Really? Wow. Um, yeah, it's um uh, you don't have to have a lawyer to help you do it. You don't have to go back to the court ever again. You just go in one time and typically pre COVID anyway, you could probate a will in a day. You just make an appointment, go down the probate court, sit in front of a clerk for about 30 minutes and walk out with the letter from the court that says you're now the executor. 
but that's not always the case. Um, with COVID, it's been more challenging with court shutdown. Um, if there are minor children, the court requires that a special type of guardian be appointed for them before the executor can be appointed, and that can take weeks. We just had one today that we finally got the letter from the court from, and we filed it in August. So the estate was sort of ground to a halt for yeah. months. Right. And that can be a real challenge um, for the family because if they don't have access to the assets of the deceased person right. for months, right. um, it could be a real hardship. Um, so a revocable living trust allows you to avoid that whole process known as probate. And it works like a will, but unlike a will, the trust can actually own assets. And I'm sure you've done this a thousand times. Um, we will tell a client, if you want to avoid probate, not only do you need to have this document called a revocable trust, but you also need to title your assets in the name of the trust. Right. What happens is they put their bank accounts, brokerage accounts, real estate, whatever it is from their individual name into the name of their trust. While they're alive, it's as if they own it. There's right. no difference in taxes. They can do anything they want with it. But upon death, the assets in the trust are immediately available to the family. Right. There's no need to go through the probate court to control that. Right. And so I so guess that, and I guess that would also be helpful perhaps if you had property in multiple states to avoid probate in multiple states. You could go ahead and do a yeah, that living is trust true. and and own these inside the the living trust perhaps and avoid probate in three or four states potentially. That's right, because everywhere you own real estate, uh, if it's in your individual name and not in a partnership or corporation or LLC, you have to probate your will. And so we all have clients who have, you know, vacation homes in different states or the family farm. And we're having to go through this probate process in multiple states, which can be time consuming and expensive. But if they retitle those properties from their individual name into their revocable trust name, they don't have to go through that process. So we use re revocable trust a lot. Um, the other advantage for some people is privacy. Your wills are public documents. If you think about it, every time a celebrity dies, it seems like within the next couple of weeks on TMZ, they're talking about <laughs> right. what their will said. You know, right. Aretha Franklin's will was found under her couch right. and everybody knew what was in it. Um, a revocable trust is a private document. It's not recorded anywhere. So a client who wants the, the details of their estate plan to remain private can use a revocable trust. And that has some appeal for some people. Talk to us a little bit about the coordination of the way properties titled, beneficiary designations, uh, and the document itself. We, we see a lot of mistakes there. Can you speak to that briefly? Yeah, I see a lot of mistakes there too. I think that's the biggest flaw in most people's estate plan is they go to all the trouble to get a great will or revocable trust in place. And then they fail to do which is usually the biggest assets in a, a client's portfolio. They fail to deal with the life insurance, the retirement plans, the IRAs, or, or accounts that have designated beneficiaries. And what's important for people to understand is if you've got a, an, an asset like an IRA that has a beneficiary designated, that overrides the terms of the will. And so you want to coordinate all that so that the beneficiaries on those types of assets are consistent with the estate plan. The biggest mistakes I see are clients that either failed to designate a beneficiary or designated the wrong beneficiary. I mean, I've had clients who have their ex-spouses designated as beneficiaries on their retirement plans, or they put their young children down as beneficiaries, and that creates all kinds of problems. So 
where you guys can come in and be really helpful in your firm right. is to make sure the clients dot their I's and cross their T's. Yeah. We make sure that's the, the last part of the estate plan that we focus on. Uh, and again, it's very important. Yeah. Yeah, it can be it can be a big problem. And again, we do we do work with guys like you to to try to get some clarity on what the objectives are and and some direction, so we can help really help the clients do the administrative part of that. You know, get the will. I mean, get the beneficiaries correct, get the accounts titled properly, and 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 so forth. Because again, um, if it's going through the beneficiary designation or you own a property joint tenants with rights of survivorship. It doesn't really matter what your will says. It's going to, the, right. going to the joint owner or it's going to the beneficiary. Let's yeah. let, let's change gears for a moment and talk about taxes. Um, you know, uh, I know a lot of people uh, assume that estate planning is not that important anymore because we've got a pretty large unified credit amount. I think you just covered a lot of reasons why it is. I mean, you know, you and I see situations both where – um, you know, we have, um, multiple marriages and children for multiple marriages that add some complexity. We've got adult children that may be struggling that we, we may want to create some structure to, to help them. Um, we've got clients that have large IRA balances that you want to do some planning around. So I think you've hit that pretty well in terms of going through the documents, but let's just talk about the rules for a minute in terms of the, 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 the numbers, the, the numbers. Okay. So, so give us a quick estate tax update. What are the critical numbers to think about in terms of gifting or estate tax exclusions? And, and so what are the rules there? Uh, you know, I know people are confused frequently. They say, if I give X amount of money to this person, are there going to be any taxes? I mean, that's a common question uh, I get. So give us the Give us sort of the, 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 the landscape on the, the tax implications of, of the estate arena. Yeah, I'll be happy to. And uh, the area is very fluid right now. In fact, I saw somebody said, you know, Ben Franklin said there's nothing certain in life except death and taxes. Yeah. I think this person said there's nothing certain about death taxes at this point. <laughs> right. Because we are constantly going through cycles where the, as we, as you called it, the numbers change. So where we are right now, it, we're sort of at the zenith of how much people can pass tax-free. Before the Trump tax cut, the exemption amount for each individual was around $5 million. So that means that you can leave $5 million tax-free to anybody at your death. You can also give that amount away during life without any tax consequence to you or the recipient. That's called the exemption is what we typically refer to it as. When Trump was elected uh, and the Trump tax cut went into effect, uh, it doubled automatically. Um, so, and with inflation adjustments, it is now $12 million per person. That means a married couple can leave an estate of $24 million tax-free. Right. Um, not a whole lot of people running around with that much money, but it's surprising in my practice how many do. Uh, the unfortunate part of that is the Trump tax cuts expire in 2026. So we'll go back to half of what it is, around $6 million per person. So we've got this period of time, at least it, it seems, to use that credit up. Um, before they take it away in 2026. And so I spend a lot of my time with wealthy clients looking at ways to utilize that credit. Um, the, uh, there's also a, a, an interesting thing that happens in an estate called step up in basis. 
So uh, you not only can pass large amounts of money tax-free, but you can also achieve a, a re, a basically a, a redo on the capital gains that you might have accumulated during death. If you went out and bought Home Depot stock at $10 a share and you die and it's worth $100 a share, the current law is that the government says you can, that your beneficiaries under your will or your trust can adjust the cost basis in that stock to its fair market value as of the date of death. So instead of having a $90 per share gain in your Home Depot stock, right. you get that wiped clean and your heirs can start over again. Theoretically, they could sell the stock the next day and pay no capital gains tax. Right. So it's really phenomenal if you think about the ability to leave $24 million tax-free and also wipe out all the income tax gain. Um, there's a lot of wealth transfer that it can occur as a result of those two rules. Um, now, you do not get a step up in basis for assets like an IRA or a 401k because that's never been taxed. Right. But you get it for stocks and real estate and business interests and things like that. Right. Um, another thing that's new in the law or relatively new is it used to be very complicated to use your estate tax exemption. When the first spouse died, there had to be a special type of trust created for the surviving spouse in order to shelter that exemption of the first spouse to die. And it, it required clients to divide their assets all up 50-50. It required a more complex will and estate plan. A few years back, Congress did something finally that made sense and they created something called portability, which means that if one spouse dies, the surviving spouse not only has their credit, but they get to carry over the exemption or the credit of the first spouse to die. So I had a widow on the phone earlier today, her husband died around New Year's and we're electing to keep his credit and her credit. So she'll right. have a $24 million credit, right. even though her husband's deceased. Right. Um, so we don't know where the laws are going other than the Trump tax cuts will expire in 2026 and the exemption will drop to half or call it $6 million per person. It, as recently as a few weeks ago, the Build It Back Better Act had provisions in it that would have accelerated this reduction in the credit to January 1st of this year. But as we all know, that didn't pass. But it is within the crosshairs of the current administration and Congress to maybe reduce that exemption. And some Congress people, like you know, like Bernie Sanders, have proposed that six million is too high and it really should be even lower than that. Right. They've also proposed the elimination of the step up in basis. So as I said, right now, everything looks pretty great but either due to time or particular changes coming along, depending on the climate in Washington, we could see some major changes in the rules that I just went through. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, of all of that, I mean, the, the, the loss and the step up in basis, I think is the one that the, um, the, the accounting community might have an issue with. And, and, and we all would, I mean, trying to figure out basis that was established, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago for assets. I mean, it, it made it, it yeah. made it, it made it pretty simple in that regard. So we've got these, we've got a, this $24 million exemption, 12 per person currently, uh, in, in the, um, current law, it will go down to about six, I guess, maybe a little more than inflation. Um, but in it, so when you give money away during your lifetime, it's really just an accounting to account for how much of that 6 million, or 12 million that you've used, correct? Yeah, there's actually uh, 
two things you can, or three things you can do during life to reduce the size of your estate. So when you die, you have less money, obviously less to tax. The, there's an exemption they call the annual exclusion. And this was meant to cover sort of Christmas presents and things like that. Right. And it's currently $16,000. And the rule is you can give $16,000 to as many people as you want every year without any tax consequence to them or to you. And I have a lot of clients who do that regularly for their children. I actually have a client, he's quite a special person. He gives over 200 people a year. Wow. That's $16,000. I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, so send, that's, yeah. Send him, send him my email address. If you well, know. I kept wondering, I'm his lawyer. <laughs> I thought maybe I'd get on the short list, but no. Um, but that's a real effective tool for people to start shifting wealth, but not in huge amounts. Um, another effective tool is paying for people's medical expenses or educational expenses. Congress treats that as not being a gift. So a lot of my clients obviously pay for their grandchildren's education. Uh, some will pay for medical expenses for their family members. Uh, that is all considered tax-free to the recipient and no tax consequence to the client. Right. Anything else would be considered what we call a taxable gift. So if you wanted to give $100,000 to your child, uh, 16 of that would be tax exempt, but the excess amount would be subject to estate tax, or excuse me, gift tax. But you get to use that $12 million credit against that amount. So if a client gives away $100,000, they'll have $11,900,000 of credit left. Right. So, so, so there's no taxes due today. You're just accounting for how much credit you have left ultimately uh, to give away later in life or through your estate. That's right. Yeah. And so we have very wealthy clients who are giving away all of that $12 million or big chunks of it because they can do it tax-free today. And we don't know what the rules will be in the future. And in their position, they feel like it would be better to go ahead and use it before you lose it. Right. Um, and so you can give, like I said, up to $12 million away to as many or as few people as you want, a total of 12 million right. without any tax consequence to them or to you. Right. Uh, so we don't really have a lot of time to go into a lot of advanced planning or more advanced planning in terms of discounting techniques or uh, that you do a lot of, I'm sure uh, as well, um, as well as a lot of interesting charitable strategies. We've had shows a little bit about some of those. I'd, I'd love to have you come back at some point, maybe, and we'll do focus on maybe some some uh, charitable gifting strategies and things of that nature, if you might be, be interested down the road. But um, anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we wrap up here? This has been really helpful in terms of uh, getting a general idea of the things you need to be thinking about in your overall estate plan. And I know we've just scratched the surface, Tony, but um, any, any other thoughts or things you'd like to chime in on? Yeah, let me throw out just two things. One, um, a lot of people feel like they don't need an estate plan. They don't need a will. We've talked about the power of attorney and medical directive and how important that is. Uh, what a lot of people lose sight of is if they don't have a will, what happens to their estate? And of course, there are laws for that. They call it an intestate if you die without a will. And Georgia has kind of an unusual law. It says that if you have, say, a married couple with two children and one of the spouses dies without a will, subject to whatever the beneficiary designations might be on the IRAs and 401ks, the spouse only gets one third of the assets and the kids get two thirds of the assets. And that is definitely 
not typical for what most people want, but that's the default rule in Georgia. So I always encourage clients, even if they don't have a large estate or, or a complex situation, that they ought to have at least a will so that their assets go where they want them to go as opposed to where the state of Georgia wants them to go. Right. So that's the intestacy laws, I guess, are in, 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 uh, in the state of Georgia. Yeah, and it can create all kinds of havoc. So basically, any married couple with children need a will. Otherwise, it can be a real disaster. Right. Okay. And there was a second thing? Yeah, I just wanted to mention one other thing kind of on the uh, tax side, but it's also important for people to understand there's been a big change in the rules applicable to IRAs and 401ks. Um, We've all been encouraged over and over again to save, 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 and use those deferred vehicles um, because we don't pay any income tax on the earnings. Well, the assumption was, of course, that you'd either use it during life or when you died, you pass it on to your kids. And the rules used to be that the kids could roll it over into their IRA and use it or defer it over their lifetime and use it, you know, towards the end of their lifetime. They recently changed those rules and a lot of people aren't aware of it. They now say that your children, when they inherit your IRA, have to take all the money out of the IRA and pay tax on it within 10 years of your death. So there's no longer this ability to sort of stretch the IRA out over generations. And that has led to some clients thinking that maybe I don't want to leave my IRA to my kids. If I've got plenty of other money, I'd rather leave it to a charity where 100% of the IRA goes to good use as opposed to my children paying estate tax and potentially income tax on that. Um, So I just wanted people to realize that IRAs are not necessarily as good as they used to be for passing wealth on to right. your children. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the the 10 year rule in terms of d- distributing it. And that, and that speaks a lot to multi-generational planning. I mean, when you do both uh, financial planning like we do, and of course, estate planning that you do, I mean, it's helpful to know the financial circumstances of the next generation to make yeah. some wise choices on who gets what and when do they get it. And, and you may be doing more harm than good. Um, well, this has been fabulous, uh, Tony. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, so how can our listeners find you if they want to find you? Uh, okay. and, or if they want to read any of your commentary or things that you do, are you active on any of the social media platforms? But more importantly, how can they find you if they would, they'd like to reach out? Well, we have a website like everybody else, and there's a lot of information on that as well. And of course, all our contact information and a description of what my firm does. And it's uh, C as in Charlie, P as in Paul, M as in Mary, T as in Tony, law, L-A-W.com, C-P-M-T, law. Okay. And so that's the best entryway for them to find out more about you and your firm and how to schedule yep. an introductory call if, if, they, if they want some help. That's right. Terrific. Well, thank you so much, Tony. As usual, um, you created great value for me and, and the audience, I'm sure. Uh, and look forward to, to the next time we get a, uh, an opportunity to work together um, uh, with, with our clients. Uh, so there you have it, folks. Thanks again for attending or, or joining us today for the Money and Meaning Show. Hope you found it uh, interesting and a value. Uh, I, I sure did. Uh, hope you'll check us out. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can check out the show on tandemgrowth.com. Happy to get feedback from you as well at moneyandmeaning at tandemgrowth.com. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. 
We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at moneyandmeaning@tandemgrowth.com, or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.